Hi, y'all. It's Joel Blackstock with the Taproot Therapy Collective podcast. We've been doing some articles um, and uh, podcasts on the psychology of different parts of art and design. Um, and then in July, we're going to sit down with Will Selman, who is a, um, a, a friend that's doing a, a book about yeah, Jungian psychology being fused with urban planning, which is a very Taproot Therapy type uh, guest to have. So we'll sit down with him in July. And today I'm doing an article about chairs. So the article from the blog, and there's pictures of these chairs and different, more information, um, as always, in the article than there is on the podcast um, and pictures. Uh, but if you want to look at the blog, you can you can read that. And the article that we're going to read today is called, You May Address the Chair. What we sit in tells us what we stand for. So <clears throat> what do chairs say about culture, personality, and psychology? Um you might notice that you and your therapist both have to sit in a chair when you go into therapy. You know, we have internalized this visual language of therapy. You know, I don't have to tell people where they're supposed to sit when they come in. They, they, they understand when you think of therapy, you think of the couch. Um, and we know, even in a picture of, you know, people that we don't know, that the therapist sits on a chair and the patient sits on the couch. And we upload pictures of our therapy offices for people to see them in therapy directories and websites because we know that the spaces that we design say something about us and we want to communicate them. So I've written a lot about how the spaces that we inhabit affect the way that we feel. And um, there's a, a video essayist, uh, Tony Zhao on YouTube, and he's a cinematographer and he says a lot of things about that the chair is the fastest way to communicate character when you're writing and designing um, the visuals for a movie. So I'm fascinated with this intersection of design and psychology. You know, design is a powerful indicator of not only personality, but also of how a society sees itself and its future. And one of the reasons that many architects become furniture designers is that both jobs require that someone have a vision of the future and a hypothesis about the way style, economy, and society are headed. You know, buildings and furniture are not a, they're not sets for a play. We don't throw them away, you know, at the end of the night. We expect them to last often longer than us, and that means that someone must look into the future and make a guess about what kinds of styles and materials will last. And not just practically that you don't want it to fall apart, but also stylistically that it, it still remains beautiful. Um, and s some of the largest fights in architecture come from the competing visions of the world and what it c could be or it should be. And one of the biggest divides between the schools of architecture and design has been between the classicists and the modernists. And the classicists prefer traditional structures and styles. And classicists believe that <clears throat> these methods evolved over time for a reason. So we shouldn't get rid of uh, tradition. That classicism is an expensive way you know, to build and it, it also was slow to change um, by its nature. So modernism <clears throat> prefers using technology and new materials to create structures that were previously impossible to build. So modernists, sometimes they throw the baby out with the bathwater and trying to discover new possibilities um, and what we can do. And classicism is asking, you know, should we do it? And modernism is asking, can we do it? And both perspectives keep design grounded in, in both form and function. 
So the designers that I'm really interested in, uh, I, I like, this is mainly about the modernist period of chairs, are Charles and Ray Eames. They were one of the most successful furniture designers of all time, um, worked for the Her Herman Miller Furniture Company. And Charles Eames was actually an architect uh, who was kicked out of school for being too radical. They didn't like what he was doing. Um, and you may know him from his iconic Eames chair, which was what I sit in in my office. Um, and Charles and his wife were very good at predicting the future. And they were so good, in fact, that the Eames chair is one of the longest manufactured and best-selling chairs of all time. And so even though, you know, even some of the work that Charles and Ray Eames did wasn't really received within their life, with the context of history, we can see what they were seeing with their in intuition. And we'll get to that. But, you know, even though it was not understood then, it was a warning to us about the risks of hyperconnection and consumption and information technology and, and a lot of things that we couldn't really hear in the 1980s at the end of their life. And so their final works were glimpses of the future and what were considered failures. Um, I don't think we should consider failures anymore. Some of their failures, I think, are actually prophecy. And so, you know, Ray Eames was always at the forefront of embracing new technology and pushing the boundaries of design. And so he recognized the power of interconnectedness and the exchange of information. And <clears throat> Ray set out to create an exhibit that would reflect these ideas. So Connections, the work of Ray Eames, was this exhibit that explored the concept of interconnectedness and the forms of design that she did at the end of her life when she was already a very famous designer, one of the most famous in the world. And Ray saw the similarities between the way that information is organized and the uh, interconnectedness of the design elements. And she believed that design should be viewed as a network or a, a relation a, or an ideas about relationships between things and um, responses and reflections, things responding to and reflecting each other like in a, a neural network. And so Charles Eames's last design was a celebration of the lives of Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin. And it was at the, uh, this is the guy, this is not Ray. This is Charles Eames's last work. It was called, um, it was for the bicentennial of the country and it was at the Met and it was called um, a celebration of the lives of Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin. And it was, uh, he grouped, you know, these historic items, all these different uh, uh, artifacts and, and things from their life, you know, by their associations with each other, but not in these museum-like exhibits where all the items are placed together, you know, th that are the same. You go into one room that's all combs and another room that's all pots. That's not how he did it. Um, and so visitors were encouraged to engage with the exhibits in a non-linear way. You didn't have to go through it only one way. So you could explore connections between different artworks or historical events and cultural phenomenon and the exhibit employed these innovative techniques such as film projections and audio recordings and tactile displays what you could touch to create this immersive and participatory experience so everyone could get what they wanted out of it, not what the designer um, was wanting you to experience. And so there were like lines where you could walk through it and, and see everything from their social life or from their political life or, you know, when they had parties and their, their friends and society. And you could follow, if you were interested in one thing, a line to another part of the exhibit, you know. I promise this will get back to chairs, but, um, you know, the, this exhibit was roasted. Nobody got it. Nobody understood it. And um, the review that the New York Times published, this is an excerpt from that in 1976, said, It is indeed precisely the kind of bicentennial show that so many of us have dreaded, an elaborate and expensive exercise in nostalgia, rich in picturesque effects, but devoid of anything resembling a serious idea. It is certainly not an exhibit that belongs in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It belongs in the show w windows of IBM.
And, you know, I think that's funny because IBM goes on to what? Invent the computer. The, the internet is about to happen. It's 1970s. We don't know that that's going to happen, but that's what's coming. Um, and so intuitives, <clears throat> they often feel things that uh, can't be explained rationally or intellectually. It's more of somebody analyzing this broad series of patterns. So many of these things, their currents in society or culture and technology. And, you know, what some people call being an empath is really just this deep attunement to systems and small changes in others and in our larger society. And what Charles and Ray Eames were feeling, but they would never live to see when they did these things about connections and networks at the end of their life that were not very well received, is they were intuiting the way that modern technology was about to hyperconnect the world in a way that would necessitate the destruction and reinvention of many forms of political, social, and economic systems. You know, Ray Eames's exhibits were visions of something called hypertext. He was trying to set this up like the internet, except the internet didn't exist. So when you're reading a Wikipedia article and you see Thomas Jefferson as a name and you're like, well, I want to find out more about that, you can click it in this nonlinear way. You don't have to click all the links. You click the one you want, you go to the next thing. And that's how the exhibit was trying to um, use what he thought future technology would be in, in a in, in meat space, you know, in, in, in the real world. And, and people didn't understand it. But you can go back and see this, and it's almost a visual representation of this thing that would be there in four years. So this interconnectedness, you know, it enables us to, ex, you know, explore information in a nonlinear and dynamic manner um, and follow our own interests and make our own connections and create a personalized and associative way of accessing information. That's what the exhibits were trying to do, um, and that's what the internet is. You know, it's this nonlinear presentation of information that's personalized and, and associative. So, why am I writing about chairs? Um, you know, it's minds like Charles and Ray Eames, who made the most famous chair of all time, um, that I find so interesting when you pull it back to psychology, and then you, 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 you know, so much of this podcast and. Um, a, a lot of the way that I want us to revision psychology is to see it not just as this thing you go to because you're a hurt puppy and then you get better and then you're sick, but it's a part of life and art and growth. And that the zeitgeist of culture, of myth, of design, of storytelling, you know, why the books that are on the New York Times bestseller list are there that month, all of that is part of psychology. And, you know, I'm looking for the keys to our psyche in all parts of culture. And chairs seem like one of the most interesting ways to do that. And it's that's why I love chairs so much. Like I always joked that. I started a therapy practice in order to feed my lounge chair addiction because uh, we had to buy a lot of chairs um, that are very nice chairs. But if you look at chair design in any period in history, especially chair designers, you'll get some of the most relevant details and interesting people of that period. So, you know, chairs might seem like these innocuous necessities at first, but when you really sit with it, you know, the, the role that they play becomes much more important. You know, I had a Latin professor tell me one time that the words that we never use um, don't change. Those words stay the same for a hundred thousand years. The words that we use often, they change very quickly, so they don't last very long. So th think about that. You know, the slang that was cool when you're in high school that's used a lot, you know, that's not copacetic anymore. It's not groovy. You know, those words lose their meaning or association pretty quickly. So, you know, words change because new generations, new social attitudes, new technologies, and new kinds of experiences mean that the most frequently used words will be modified or replaced first. And, and chairs are the same way. They're a piece of furniture that most people will be the most likely to use in most settings. You know, you don't always interact with a refrigerator. You don't always interact with a bed in every building that you go into. You usually interact with a chair. If you interact with any furniture anywhere that you go, it's most likely to be a chair. Um, 
And because chairs are such a necessity, they're also these great barometers for style and culture. You know, what ideas are timeless and what ideas are outdated by the end of the week? You know, chairs tell you what a place is, what it values, and the social worth of the, you know, the posterior that they're holding up, the person sitting in it, the butt that is in that chair. How valuable is it? You know, is it a student in a school? Is it the Pope? Is it the king? Like the chair tells you that. Um, you know, chairs are highly symbolic and influential in politics and myth and religion, film, storytelling. You know, what was the TV show that was so big? Game of Chairs, right? So, you know, chairs gives you an immediate context in situations where you might not even realize that you're thinking about a chair. What's going on? You know, you know that this guy is the king because of where he sits. You know that this is the choir in the church and those are the parishioners because of where they're seated. You know, the bishop sits here. You know, the chairman sits at the head of the table. If you went over to somebody's house for dinner, you wouldn't just be like, okay, there's six chairs here and sit at the head of the table. You would know that that chair is not for you. Um, you know, the, the brand and the purpose of your business is communicated based on the chairs. And I know that something is out of date when I go somewhere and now the chairs don't look like they were made this era or they look like something that's not sold anymore. Um, you know, design was always going to be an important part of taproot therapy when we were designing it because it's important to me. And so it was important to me that the style of our brand communicated um, that we had ideological roots in both the cutting edge brain based medicines of the future as well as the holistic and ancient wisdom traditions of the past. And so our, our brand design was the, well, I joked with Bree that it was going to be, you know, Gandalf's wizard study meets an Apple store, the kind of minimalist modernism with this kind of eclectic old world, um, uh, things. And I, I told our web designer that our, our store was, our, our website was going to be falling water by frankly, Wright meets a yurt in the Southwest. That was what I wanted it to look like, which confused him until he got what I meant. But, you know, not everyone will notice these details when they go into Taproot, but you still feel them. And the things that we don't notice, they often speak louder than the details that we're trying to listen to. So people feel the weight of furniture. I mean, they feel if you sit down in it and your body weight makes the chair scoot across the floor or if it's rock solid because it's heavy and there's real wood in there, um, as opposed to plastic, even if you can't see it because you, your body feels the weight of that. And it communicates something to you. I mean, you feel the way that light reflects off real wood grain versus laminated, you know, compressed sawdust that has wood printed on it. Your brain, even if you're not thinking about it, does not clock that the same way. It knows that that's not real. Um, and people know that, you know, if the same chair at Target that they've seen a whole lot is unique or if there's kind of a weird piece of art that makes them slow down and think, you know, that space affects you. So you feel these details even if you don't exactly know what or why they are. And the spaces that we inhabit affect us unconsciously. <clears throat> and I wanted Taproot to feel different. I wanted it to be a liminal space that slowed you down and made you start to think and feel when you were in the waiting room before you even went into therapy. And that's why all the offices are so different, is they match the style and the personality and the perspective and the modality to a certain extent of each clinician there. You know, my office does not look like Christie's. Um, and most of the styles of chair at Taproot, they come from this modern or mid-century period, which is the design period that we're talking about. Um, that's interesting to me. And these periods, they're interesting to me because they were the celebration of like innovation in furniture design and manufacturing. Um, even if all the designers in the movement couldn't quite agree on what that was or where it was going, it was this time of a whole lot of uh, different reinvention. So, you know, how did the mid-century modern furniture movement come about? Well, um, in the 
beginning of the kind of mid 20th century, there was this big rise of consumer culture. You know, people weren't just living in the same farmhouse that their granddaddy had lived in and using the same tab- table that he ate at. Um, but they were moving to new cities and new houses, new areas and buying new furniture. And so they were, they were trying, there were these competing styles that were popping up. Um, there was a lot of consumerism and there was also, um, <clears throat> there was also this uh, explosion of manufacturing processes that we could build with new materials, things, these different ways that you could mass manufacture. And so there's all this innovation going on. And so <clears throat> with the increasing availability of resources and this desire to, to figure out what the market wanted, you know, the, the design became this mean of, of self-expression and a, a reflection of this individual taste and lifestyle and the introduction of innovative materials and production techniques allowed for the creation of chairs that catered to different economic segments. You didn't have to, you could do fancy chairs, not fancy chairs, high priced, you know, all different kinds. It didn't all have to just be the same European wooden kitchen chair that most, you know, houses probably had, you know, in the twenties. Um, so, and you're leaving this period of austerity of war. Um, so there was, so taste is um, going, the modern era is moving away from the older, you know, uh, very highly Baroque and ornamental styles with gold leaf and carving. And it was moving more towards this uh, minimalistic simplicity. So mid-century modern stuff doesn't have a lot of design. It's very, um, it looks aerodynamic. It looks like a fast car or a fast plane. Um, it has the detail shaved off of it. It's very ergonomic. Um, it was like, you know, we had built chairs for a thousand years. The Rococo or French New Empire style had to have all this elaborate ornamentation to show your social class. And now we don't really care about communicating our social class <clears throat> in that way by saying that we can afford the chair because everyone can afford it. So we're trying to talk a different way. And that became this um, style, you know, um, that was what was underneath the minimalism of mid-century modern furniture. And so uh, a lot of that mid-century modernist movement emerged as a response to the cultural landscape of the 19th century. Older styles were based on, you know, extravagant resources of European mobility or mimicking that. Um, And then now, you know, clients were starting to think of what a chair is and what it could be. And so French and English styles went out of favor and inspired by principles of simplicity and functionality and efficiency, new designers champion this idea of honesty and materials that you didn't do a facade. You didn't like try and make it look gold, even though it was wood or you didn't paint it to make it. So you couldn't tell what kind of what it was. You, you're going to use wood. That was because you chose it. It was the best material. You're going to make it look as pretty as you could and really showcase the material. You weren't going to cover something up and try and hide it um, in the way that uh, other things used other styles use those materials as a means to an end, but not as a celebration of the material. And so by showcasing materials in their true form, devoid of unnecessary ornamentation, <clears throat> designers, you know, they aim to reflect the spirit of evolving society. So, um, you know, things like gold or ornamentation and paint were not used to disguise wood. Instead, the wood was celebrated um, as naturally as you can with an oil or a wax. And, you know, this led to this clean, stripped down archetypal design Um, that's, I like archetypal finding archetypal patterns. And a ton of this was like, what do you have to have to be a chair? Like, what is the nature of a chair? What can you get rid of and have it still be a chair? Um, you know, really trying to find the archetype of chair or the platonic form of chair. And so designers like Eames, they understood the the capabilities and the limitations of manufacturing processes. And that meant that they could create designs that were both efficient to make, which meant that people could afford them. 
because um, <clears throat> if you make a $5,000 chair, it's not going to be the best selling chair of all time. Um, even though Herman Miller has jacked the price of the Eames chair up to $5,000, but that's not what it was built to be. It was built to be economic. Um, so they, they wanted to, to do something that was both efficient and aesthetically pleasing. And so they used mass production not to make more money, but to make a higher quality product available to more people. And so this approach allowed them to create innovative <clears throat> and mass produced furniture that was affordable and accessible to a wide audience. And so modern and postmodern design generally emphasized the importance of honesty in materials. And honesty of material means the material should be used in its truest form, like I'd said. And, you know, you don't paint plastic to look like wood, which we do now. I don't like that. You know, if you're going to do something with plastic, then do the coolest thing that you can do with plastic. Make a crazy shape. Don't try and make it look like something else. Um, so, you know, doing the, during this Cold War era, their game theory was really big, which is, uh, you know, th th during the Cold War, they were trying to figure out how to win the Cold War, basically. And so there's all this game calculation and ideological stuff. And so furniture uh, and, and modern art was seen as this thing that showcased American individuality in a way that socialist communists couldn't do that because they had to make everything the same. Um, we were showcasing our individuality and they were trying to make everything the same. So a ton of this was very celebrated and very political at the time. Um, it, it's come out now that the CIA actually was paying for a bunch of this stuff like Jackson Pollock, a lot of these people that were these crazy modern artists. Which is funny because you see that a lot of conservative people now are, are like harken back to tradition, don't like modern art. But then it was all the, you know, buzz cutted military guys that were paying the modern artists in order to show that, um, you know, this thing was possible in America that was not possible somewhere else. Um, my one Another one of my favorite designers of this period, um, I know you can't see the pictures because you're not on the blog, but is Adrian Pearsall. If you Google his couches, Um his, uh, I, I don't think they do anything with it. I know restoration hardware like owns the rights to his name. I've never seen them put it on anything. So I don't, I don't know if uh, it would be cool if they still did replicas of his things as I would actually buy something from restoration hardware or West Elm if that was what they did. Uh, but no. Um, so yeah, he, he did couches though. And so his, he was like very influenced by water and boats. And so his couches looked like oceans that kind of rippled throughout the room or like some of them look like gondolas, like they're, they're floating. And, um, a lot of, uh, the design language of Mazda Mazda has all these ripply patterns in their cars. It comes from him. Um, the, the Mazda design language is called Nagare. Um, but it has, uh, anyway, he was very influential too. If, uh, you want to Google him, he's, his stuff is very pretty. So there's this strong emphasis on individual expression and the celebration of uniqueness. And some iconic modernist pieces, you know, achieve this delicate balance between form and function. There's a ton of experimentation going on. I don't like all of it. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the chrome and black leather and glass and like crazy mixed materials. Um, <laughs> there's an architect that I really don't like, Le Cabousier and Mies van der Rohe. And they have this like almost HR Geiger, like cold machine like thing, because I think what they were thinking that the future was, was not what the Eames were looking at, which was, you know, this synthesis of the, the community of the office or the community of the home. And they thought it, it was going to be like technology and cold and machines. And so they like put chrome on all this stuff. And I just I don't you see that show up as mid-century modern furniture, but it just looks so dated and like 80s mod to me like I, I i can't do it so not all of this stuff i think is is good um but it is an interesting period just because there's so much experimentation going on um 
So uh, German, Hannah Arendt is a, a German philosopher, and she argues that humans exist in this condition of what she calls natality, meaning that each, each person is born into a, a unique world, and they uh, have the capacity to initiate something new from their unique perspective. And for uh, Arendt, the, the world is the space where individuals can create and establish their own identities and engage with others and participate in meaningful activities. And culture is formed through human activities such as labor, work, and action. So those are sacred and important functions. Um, and the environment plays a crucial role in shaping and influencing individuals' experiences. So Arendt recognized that the world is a dynamic and interactive space that individuals engage with. And um, the environment provides this context and conditions for human action and facilitates the development of individual and collective identities. So, I mean, one way of saying that is that the, the spaces we inhabit and work in, you know, need to be more than practical because they affect us. And they're kind of the point of life to a certain extent. And they, uh, they, what you, where you work affects how you live at home and how you live at home affects how you work and vice versa. That all of these spaces um, are in communication with each other because they're part of our psychology and we need to be mindful about them is, is maybe a way of making that sound a little bit less like um, a college essay. But, you know, one, uh, another one of my favorite authors, uh, Robert Poke Harrison, he writes that, you know, design and architecture, they're not just merely utilitarian or functional, um, but they're imbued with a cultural and aesthetic significance. You know, he suggests that our living spaces reflect and shape our sense of belonging, our identity, our connection to the world. And he examines the ways in which architecture and design influence our experiences of uh, being at home and the impact our surroundings have on our well-being. And when he talks about chairs in, in a book on design, he says that, you know, the, they, ha they mediate between the body and the environment. You know, the chair is the thing that connects you to the room. You're not touching the wall. You're not touching the ceiling. Um, you're, you're intimately connected and supported by the chair. So it's connecting you to the building <clears throat> and it is an anchor between you and the building. And so the tools we use, especially the most essential ones, they're either successfully connecting you to growth and beauty or they're failing to. And we just say a chair is a chair. And I don't, I don't think that, I think we should bring some intentionality to our space. And many people make the case that these lounge chairs that I'm talking about, they cost exorbitant sums of money. And the Eames chair, Herman Miller, because it's famous, they jacked the price way up. But the Eames is when they were alive. Um, you know, I would recommend getting one if you want one from another manufacturer. It's in the common domain. Someone else can make them. There's a lot of companies that make them um, just as good and for a lot less. Um, there's some cheap versions, but th that's kind of an aside. I mean, that point that this stuff is just for the ultra wealthy art guy to play around with, I would push back against that because... You know, some of these chairs are ostentatious or they're stupid uh, or the prices are stupid, but that's largely just because the, the, some of these are rare antiques or they're made by the few remaining companies that still employ people to build things. Um, you know, again, we have forgotten what design means, I feel. You know, like most of the chairs that we have at Taproot, I didn't pay anything for. Um, you know, they belong to family or friends who are moving out or, you know, people who donated them and then they would say, Oh, you want this? This is all beaten up and old. And I was able to restore it and fix it. Um, a lot of it came from garage sales. You know, if you, if you learn about this stuff, you sort of know how to fix it and, and what, what it's worth. And, uh, you know, the Niles Moeller number 71 in the, in the new neurostimulation and brain mapping room that we refinished, you know, they needed work, but they were designed to be worked on because they weren't built to be thrown away. Like we build everything now. They were built to last forever. And, Things that we love, they need work. And things with no value, we throw away. 
you know, we pretend that like this thing that's disposable that I'm going to throw in the trash in a year is so important. And no, it's not. You're going to chuck it. If it was important, it would be something that you would have with you for your life that your kids would have. And, you know, I have no problem disassembling these chairs and then reassembling them into pieces because they were designed to be timeless and not replaced the next year. Um, you know, I think that they're, you know, close to 100 years old. Like a lot of this stuff came from um, a relative of mine who who passed away and I had to buy them from her estate, um, which, you know, I could have paid the same amount for a chair that didn't need any work on, on Wayfair, but I'd be throwing it away because it, it would be impossible for me to fix it. So, you know, I have tried and failed before to put together like a brand new $500 table from a modern furniture company that just breaks because it's crap. And you call the company and you're like, I paid $500. This doesn't work. Oh, that's no, fine. Throw it away. We'll give you another one. Cause they know how much their stuff is worth. This it's not worth anything. Um, you know, I was able to take these things that are almost a hundred years old and fix them. <laughs> I can't even put together a brand new $500 table and I paid 30 bucks you know, for, for these chairs. And, you know, you see these on Etsy or whatever, the Niles Moller go for a ton. Like mine are not in great condition and I refinished them, which probably I didn't do that in a historic way, but like, I mean, some of them sell for over a thousand dollars and I I could throw these on Etsy, but it's important to me that I bring them to Taproot and I share them with you. You know, I loved my late godmother very much and I bought them from her uh, estate and she loved Carl Jung. She loved labyrinths. She loved depth psychology, a ton of the stuff that, we do at Taproot. And when I see them there, I think of her and they're meaningful. You know, it's a space that I want you to feel loved. And I I want people to feel like it's liminal and and numinous and and real in a way that I don't feel when I go into a lot of spaces. So, you know, myself and other therapists that I've worked with and other practices, you know, we threw out and replaced more money than I spent on everything that Taproot has that we haven't thrown any of it away. We won't. But annually, we were throwing away all the Wayfair furniture or all the um, West Elm stuff just does not last. They market it as higher end, but I don't know why. Um, you know, it, it like they would buy all this stuff and then you would throw it away. And it was like they really we would spend like two or three times just a year what we spent total because I buy things that I don't want to ever throw away. And I think that is a better way to think about consumption and a better way to think about design. And it's like a lot of people make fun of consumerism and consumption. Well, you know, that isn't inherently a bad thing. The Eames, when they were designing these things, they were trying to make them permanent and timeless. And they wanted to make them as efficient and inexpensive as possible so that um, people could afford them. And and they were important to center their designs on the middle class. But they weren't willing to be so cheap that it was garbage and then it wouldn't be something that would last forever. You know, my kids will inherit that furniture. You know, those chairs connect me to you and and one day my children to the beautiful person my godmother was. And I get so much more pleasure out of that than if they were just kind of plastic folding chairs that you sat in while you did, you know, what I hope is one of the more important things you'll ever do, which is work on yourself therapeutically. So... Isn't it said it's fun to me to sit with these ideas for a minute and remember a time when people just made things out of love and for the sake of art and self-discovery, even if it's a chair, because what does it do to our mental health to live in a world where everything we eat, everything we watch, everything we put in our house has become dispensable, disposable garbage. We've forgotten what design means. People talk about a beautiful design of an iPhone designs in quotes there of their Apple, whatever. 
and then they throw it away in a month when they're in the, because you don't glue glass that can't be removed to something that is designed well because you glue glass to something that can't be removed when you want someone to crack it and throw it away and get a new one. You know, good design is timeless, even if it is a timeless experience of remembering the way a meal was plated or something. I'm not saying timeless, like it ha- everything has to last forever. You know, food doesn't. But I still remember eating at Sean Brock's restaurant because it was one of the best meals that I've ever had. And there was so much thought put into everything that he did. You know, it lasted. It was timeless. And, you know, some beautiful designs of software or hardware come out of Silicon Valley. I'm not saying that a phone doesn't include design. Like, I still think about my Sony Ericsson candy bar slider phone from college. But I'm, I'm weird, right? Most people are not doing that. Most people who said that their iPhone is beautiful and it's designed so well threw it away. You know, they're not uh, saving it. You know, realistically, how many of you are framing photos and treasuring these memories of the things that you claim are designed so well? You know, please don't send me the email and be like, well, if you look at the screws on a Samsung phone, they're not in a line, but on Apple, they're all in a line because of design. That's not what design is, <laughs> okay? Like, it's not. I don't care that the screws are in a line on your iPhone. Like, um, you know, generally, most high technology innovations are not really innovations. Like they're just disguises for triggering humanity's worst addictive and obsessive and competitive tendencies so that you buy a new phone next year because you've just been told that now the future is rounded corners and then next month it's less bezel or whatever. I mean, the design moves in one direction and then it moves back. It doesn't consistently move in a direction with a plan. It's just kind of creating something a little bit different so we can pretend create this itch of, I want to get this new thing. And you know, there are companies that are better and worse at design and, you know, a phone I know is going to be more disposable than a chair. Um, but I, I hope you hear what I'm saying here. I mean, the reason I think some of this stuff happens is because we got rid of manufacturing and we kept talking about design. It's not made here. You know, it says on the back of the phone, designed by Apple in California, real big. And then real tiny, it says made in China or made in Vietnam. But, you know, but somebody designed it in, in California. Well, no, that's not design. You know, we think that design is something that we can dream up in a vacuum and then outsource all the nitty gritty details of realizing our vision to someone else. And if I tell you, hey, go paint this painting, I'm in California and then you go paint it in China. I, I'm not an artist. You're the artist. You did it. <laughs> you know, as Charles and Ray Eames discovered when they built their first chair, you design it as you're manufacturing it. You know, the, the first design that they made, it was too hard for them to build themselves. And so they started over with something that the two of them could build themselves before they sent it to a manufacturer. They drew this thing on paper and they were like, this chair is awesome. It's going to kill. It's going to sell these things. They took it to a manufacturer and they were like, you can't build this. So it wasn't a design, (laughs) you know, it was a picture of something that they couldn't build. So they, they went back and they got plywood wet and they played with the plywood and they saw that when you got the plywood wet that you could bend it and then you could put it in a kiln and exactly how much could you bend it and, and to what variance and what tolerance. And when you did it this way, maybe it looked better, but it didn't last as long. So we can't do it that way. And they figured out, and that's what the Eames chair came out of. Um, they did, there was another uh, chair before the Eames chair. Eames chair was later career, but that's what the origin of their style was, was figuring out what these new processes could actually do and then doing them, not just drawing something and then saying I'm an artist because they weren't, design is, is part of making it. Um, and the, the, the takeaway here is like, they weren't trying to sell you an Eames chair every year. A lot of the changes on phones are because they want you to buy a new phone every year when we really don't need to do that. We could replace batteries. We could replace these things. Um, but 
des- the word design is used to make you throw something away by these companies. When when someone is using the word to make you put something in the trash, and and you're calling that design, it's not. It 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 isn't. Um, you know, because they wanted the, the Eameses wanted to see a future for the beauty of what the future could be, not to sell it to you. And you know, American brands didn't have used to not have planned obsolescence, and we moved economy into this place where all all the companies that didn't, like Maytag, the original Maytag appliance company, they went under because we were rewarding planned obsolescence in, in design which I think is getting rid of design. You know, Maytag, I don't know if you know, they were a, a company that built the best washing machine and they lasted forever. I mean, they were built like a tank, but people were inheriting them from their grandparents. And so Maytag wasn't selling enough washing machines. And so they declared bankruptcy and they got bought. And now when you look at the companies that make Whirlpool, Maytag, Wolf, Viking, all of uh, what's the KitchenAid, all of those companies, there's only two companies in the world. Those brands are fake. They put the label on. It doesn't really matter. You know, Maytag is still made, but it's just a mark that's owned by one of these two giant planned obsolescent factories. I had um, a refrigerator broken. The repairman came and he was saying, you know, I could fix this, but they're telling you they make it cost slightly more to replace it than they do. Slightly less to replace it than they do to fix it because they don't want me to fix it. They want you to throw it away. And I was like, and he was interesting. And I was like, well, what's the best brand out there? And he was like, man, I've worked for 17. They're all owned by the same company. And they do tests. They put grit in the oil in the hinges. And they have machines that test hundreds and hundreds of times. How many times can you open this door before it breaks? And he said, on these cheaper brands, they'll give it to you for less. But you're going to pay for it in parts. And they make sure that their margin is the same. Or you can go out and you can buy the the super fancy name brand, you know, Wolf or... or uh, I think Viking is up there. What's the Sub-Zero is the other one. And he was like, and that one will not have any issues. But you're giving them the money up front. They're going to get the money either way. So it doesn't really matter what you buy anymore, which is very sad. You know, to, to me, it's sad because this stuff started as this way to express individual identity um, through consumption and a free market. And um, now that same consumption and consumerism is you know, on one level, just hyper out of control, but it's also kind of fake. I mean, it doesn't matter if you buy the Maytag or if you buy the Wolf or if you buy the Viking. They're, they're either going to be fixing the cheap thing until they get the same amount of money as if you buy the nice thing. You don't really have a choice. And, you know, being a prophet with, you know, uh, P-H-E-T, uh, like, you know, a, a prophet like Moses, like I, I think the Eam, I'm, I'm trying to uh, say the spelling, you know, that's different from profit like money. And I think that these people who are trying to see into the future, it genuinely, in the mid-century movement, it generally was to build something that was incredible and to try and see a beautiful future. And now we just pretend that the future is this thing so we can sell you something. But there's not any of that process of design really left. And, you know, humans want to live in the ego alone. Like we're designed to kind of fall victim to our worst angels. We want to live in fads and trends and hyper-consumption and free market capitalism. It exploits all that. Um, and, and it's why consumerist capitalism will always eschew, it'll skew aesthetic taste towards thoughtlessly modernist design and planned obsolescence because people are threatened by things that take away their ego's control and point them back to a timeless reality and to our own personal significance and, and, and things in the face of the numinous. You know, good design is challenging 
Another way of saying that is good design is kind of threatening. So it's something that we need, but we don't want, you know, like we want to eat sugar and salt and fat because that's what felt good when we were trying not to starve and we're evolving, but it isn't what we need when we know that. Um, I think we should think of design in the same way that we think of diet. Um, you know, I like good design because it points us back to a greater psychological, spiritual, and transcendental reality. And I believe that we can build a better world where than one where all of our interactions with people and spaces that we inhabit are just transactions. I mean, I think we need to think where we assign value and where we place our identity. And we need to admit that the places that we live and work in affect us and are worth our mindful attention. Um, for us, for ourselves, and for others. Um, and not just as practical considerations, but as intuitive creative projects for us to find our own and our collective humanity's soul. You know, modernist designers sought to break away from tradition and form and create furniture that embodied their personal visions. And, and this approach resonated with the American spirit of individualism. You know, breaking old ideas is always a risk, but creation is a risky business. Um, and good design is timeless because it comes from a timeless element and forms in the human psyche that we're making contact with. And it may take generations to map these unseen realms of our collective humanity through our intuition, but we don't always know good design when we see it, but I would argue that we know it when we feel it. And even more so, we know it when it sticks around. The Eames chair is here. And I mean, I could throw out some brands from the 50s, but no one would know what they are. <laughs> um, those things are not around. Um, there's a lot of stuff that just sucked and we got rid of it. Um, but the things that stay generally are timeless. And, you know, when Hannah Arendt or Robert Poe Harrison are talking about those quotes that I read, like they are correct that changing ourself begins with changing our environment and vice versa. You have to work on your environment while you work on yourself and changing yourself will also change your environment. But there's a relationship between them. And if you want to start your life, if you want to change your life, Start by changing your chair. All right, guys, that was the article on chairs. Um, we've been doing some pieces on design. We'll probably get back to depth psychology and other stuff soon. If you'd like to see another topic, send me an email. And it was never my intention to uh, monetize the podcast or anything. Um, we can just kind of do it as a free resource. It's, it's fun. Um, but uh, so, so total coincidence did not seek out to try and be a, a brand rep or an influencer. But um, so many people bought the Cardiel, um, K-A-R-D-I-E-L furniture that we have at Taproot because they ask about the Woodrow couch that's in my office and down, also downstairs in a couple other offices and then um, some of the chairs, some, a lot of our furniture came from them. Um, and so, uh, anyway, enough people bought it that Cardiel asked us if we wanted to be a brand rep, um, which, you know, I, I don't really know what we'll do with, uh, long story short, they gave our business an offer code, which is a uh, taproot. So if you use promo code taproot, I never thought I would say anything like this on this podcast, <laughs> but if you use offer code taproot, uh, at cardiel.com, K-A-R-D-I-E-L, then you get a discount and we also get uh, some compensation, which we put back towards the business and it lets us continue to you know, offer therapy at a sliding scale and, and grow and develop new programs like NeuroSTEM, which is you know a, a new thing, but um, probably a risk. And also we're the first people in the state to, to be able to provide that. 
um, neurostimulation and brain mapping. So anyway, we're developing new programs uh, and the any money that we get goes back towards that. So it helps you. It can help us if you want to buy some of this stuff. Uh, I guess use offer code uh, taproot at, at cardio.com. And um, that's the podcast for this week. I hope you're well and we'll talk to you soon.